The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 320. You can't expect people to come to work for you and to be totally focused on doing their jobs and doing them well if all they can think about is whether or not the lights are going to be on when they get home. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm your host, Jeff Brown. And if you know me at all, you know that I believe that intentional and consistent reading is key to success in business and in life. The idea behind the podcast is to help you narrow your reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's best books through some of today's best authors. Sitting in the guest chair today is a young woman named Sherry Deutschman. She's author of the book Lunch with Lucy, Maximize Profits by Investing in Your People. I'll ask Sherry to explain the key differentiating factor between the $40 million company she founded and most other companies, a unique formula for determining what really is a fair living wage, her personal spin on profit sharing, and much more. Sherry Stewart Deutschman is a serial entrepreneur, author, speaker, and advocate for entrepreneurship. Her first venture was LetterLogic, Inc., a company she founded in her basement and grew to $40 million before selling it in 2016. LetterLogic was named an Inc. 5000 company, part of the fastest-growing privately held businesses in the U.S. for 10 consecutive years, featured in the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, Business Leaders, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, and more for her unconventional work culture and success, Sherry was also honored by President Barack Obama as a White House Champion of Change in 2016. Last year, she founded Brain Trust, a company dedicated to helping women entrepreneurs grow their business to $1 million in annual revenue and beyond. Again, her book is called Lunch with Lucy, Maximize Profits by Investing in Your People. And her name is, no, it's not Lucy. It's actually Sherry. Sherry, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. I guess it kind of is Lucy and Sherry at the same time. We can talk about that here in just just a moment yeah. uh, as to what that means. I want to first say uh, thank you to, to Leah Glover-Hayes, who introduced us. If not for her, we might not be having this conversation. So, Leah, if you're listening, thank you very much. Leah's a great connector, isn't she? Uh, she certainly is. I, I'm a former co-worker of hers back in my radio days, and I have very fond memories of, of working together with Leah. She's great. I, I loved your book. Uh, let me just say that right up front. I actually, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, I cried twice while reading it. Oh. Uh, one of those times is um, where there, there was the husband and wife employees that were being surprised by the staff with, with this car. Uh, it, it's funny because my, my wife makes fun of me for this. I, when I read oftentimes in my office, I've got a reading chair, I'll close the door, and I'll oftentimes read out loud to myself because 
I find that I retain information better that way. I take notes and do other things too, but I, I couldn't get through the, <laughs> a couple of sections without a quivering lip and chin. And so I, I kind of had to stop reading out loud in order to get through some of those sections, but very, very enjoyable read. Excellent. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I thought we'd start by having you share a bit about uh, your history, uh, maybe help give some context to a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. Uh, what was it like for you in the early days before you started your company, Letter Logic? Talk about some of the struggles you overcame, mistakes you made, failures, some of the successes as well. Um, if you want to talk about my failures, we need a long <laughs> but I, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina uh, in a pretty conservative household. My parents are Jehovah's Witnesses, and I was raised as a witness. And witnesses typically don't encourage college education, so I have only a high school education. My only skills were knocking on doors, which witnesses are good, good for, <laughs> and um, also scrubbing toilets. I had uh, My sister and I had a little route where we cleaned service station bathrooms, and then we cleaned homes for the wealthy people who owned a mountain homes there in Banner Elk. And that was about it. I, I moved to Nashville because I thought I was going to be a star. Mm. Uh, in my hometown, Banner Elk, North Carolina population, I don't know, less than a thousand probably, year-round residents. I thought I was a star and came to Nashville and found out I wasn't. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm solidly mediocre, but I came out and auditioned for a TV show, passed the audition, and then moved here still, uh, even though I came in last place on the show, because um, I just felt confident in my ability to overcome anything. And I was a single parent. I'd just gone through a divorce, um, mm. moved here in those first couple of years in Nashville were very hard. You know, often I had to choose between paying the light bill or paying for daycare. And so Whitney and I learned to live often without electricity. And I share in the book about my parents coming to visit unannounced because they couldn't call me because I didn't have a phone. Mm. And they just showed up and just were so upset that I didn't have electricity and, you know, that we had only a cooler with, you know, Whitney's, you know, milk and cheese and things like that in it. And then in those early days, and I didn't have health insurance, I didn't have a credit card, I didn't have any money. And when my, my daughter cut her foot on the playground, and I cleaned the wound as good as I could, but it started looking really bad. And eventually, I just had to take her to the emergency room and found out that she had a really bad staph infection, mm. and she could have died or lost her leg. Mm. And so I, I think those early years, uh, they were hard here, but they really helped me develop an even greater empathetic bone than I had already. And I already have a pretty <laughs> serious, innate uh, uh, empathy challenge, but those early years in Nashville uh, helped me hone that even greater. Mm. And, and empathy is at the heart of, of letter logic. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just, just a moment. In those early days, as you began working different jobs, over time, you began to find that you flourished in the area of sales, did you not? And had some, some maybe mentors that came along your way and sort of helped bring you along in that uh, skill. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. As it turns out, my talent is not in singing. It's in sales. <laughs> And so I, I went from having so little money that I couldn't keep the lights on to making six figures pretty quickly just by getting into the rhythm of you know, selling, mostly in the healthcare world, and uh, developed a couple of lifelong friends and mentors. In my book, I refer to him as Clark Gable, but 
The real name is is Bob Lewis, who is a former Navy commander who became my boss and who taught me. It was so patient and kind. He treated me like his daughter and teaching me about everything mm-hmm. that had to do with business. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about lessons that he taught me and so grateful to having him as, as a mentor. There was a story you share at one point in the book of a man who approached an entrepreneur who approached you about starting a company that would compete with, I think, the company you were working for at the time, and you didn't like the offer and turned it down, but it, it sort of lit a fire in you, did it not? Yes. I, mean, I was working for this company, making a lot of money, but the company had some serious problems, uh, just human error that had not seemed to overcome. And I was getting very frustrated with it when this very well-known local, very wealthy man invited me to lunch and told me, I think you should leave that company. I think you should start competing with them and I will back you. And he he offered me, I think the salary was like $35,000 a year. And he was going to allow me to earn up to 5% equity in the company. And that just didn't seem like a really good idea for me since I was already you know, getting six figures. But it gave me so much confidence because this man really does have the Midas touch. I mean, he's extremely wealthy. He's built several really important companies. And I just had to start trying to look at myself through his eyes. If he thought I could do it, then perhaps I could. Um, but I'm really happy that I was, I don't know, hard-headed enough to say no to him <laughs> <laughs> because I, that deal wasn't good. But it you know, made me start thinking, and I went to several other people, five other entities actually, to say, hey, I think I want to start a company doing this, and I need this much money. Will you fund it? And this is hard to believe for most entrepreneurs, but all five of those people said yes. Mm. And yet, uh, none of them would allow me to run the company the way I, I thought a company should be run. Wow. The thing I think is is incredible about that is I think I think most people in your situation would have thought, well, you know, this person has the Midas touch, as you said, and how am I going to pull this off? Otherwise, I better accept their offer at the very least, you know, counter in some way and then go from there. I, I, in other words, I don't think most people would have just flat out said no and gone out on, on their own. And I think that that just says so much about the human being that you are and the tenacity that, that is within you. So I, I admire that. Thank you. I mean, one of the offers, the best offer that I got was from a software company in town that operates in the healthcare realm globally. And they offered to allow me to start the company. They would fund it as a wholly owned subsidiary of their company, and I would be president of that company. Mm. That still, I didn't think, would give me enough control to run the company in the unorthodox manner that I wanted to run a company. So I said no to that, too, and just uh, cashed in my 401k, had a week-long yard sale that I'm sure my neighbors still talk about, (laughs) Uh, sold everything that I owned that I could sell, and then went to Goodwill to buy the essentials for for setting up an office, and I was running. Mm. Well, we uh, hinted a moment ago at Empathy being at the heart of, of Letter Logic. It's a company that uh, that Sherry eventually uh, founded, and and a company that has a reputation uh, for truly caring about its employees. Uh, is it this empathy factor? Is that the thing, the 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 one differentiating factor, or the main differentiating factor between this company you founded and most other companies? Would you say that's that statement is true? Absolutely, mm. empathy 
is what set us apart. It's what made us successful in a commoditized industry and with very thin margins. It allowed us to be the most expensive in the industry and to still grow like crazy. Mm. It was the number one ingredient to our success. How was this way of doing business received by customers? And and by this way of business, I mean a, a business that puts its employees first. Well, I um, was accustomed to meeting with prospective clients, and those were healthcare systems, large hospitals and healthcare systems. And I would sit with them, these big boardrooms, and tell them about my company. And and I would say, looking them right in the eyes so sincerely, I want your business, but you have to know that I don't believe the customer comes first. Mm. I believe my employees come first. But let me tell you about that. And then I would tell them how we paid for 100% of the medical, dental, disability, and life insurance for our employees, how we helped our employees buy their first homes, how we gave 10% of the profit to the employees every month, uh, how we let them bring their kids and their pets to work, how we helped them start their own businesses if they wanted to do that. Mm. And, And as I started explaining these benefits, I mean, their eyes were wide open, and usually somebody in the room would say, can we come to work <laughs> And And then there was a visceral reaction where oftentimes they said, where do we sign? Mm. They got it. They got that happy, dedicated employees will take better care of them. And I remember uh, Stanford University Medical Center, when uh, they chose us to do their patient statements, they wrote us a letter and said, you were 10% higher than the next highest bid. Mm. And we still chose you. And we chose you because of the culture. Wow. So it, it turned out to be one of the greatest sales tools we ever had, although that's not why we did it. When I first started going with the sales team and, and, and telling the customer they didn't come first, you could see my sales guys just uh, cringing. <laughs> scared to death at the reaction. And then pretty soon they got into that rhythm and they loved it. And today they will tell you that probably more than 80% of their sales came as what they call a culture sale, where that is why we were chosen and why people were willing to pay us a premium. Mm. Well, one aspect to achieving that culture, I would say, is this concept of lunch with Lucy, hence the name of the book. Tell me a bit about this lunch with Lucy idea, Sherry, and, and, and why you think it works so well. Well, I, I think let me start with why it works so well is because all humans have the need to be heard and to have a voice. And I wanted to get to know my employees better and I wanted to hear them. I wanted to listen to what was going on in their lives and asking people to lunch as the CEO, even though they knew that I was not an educated woman, it was still intimidating to them. And so just to try to eliminate the hierarchical uh, aspect of it, instead of saying, have lunch with the CEO, I created a pretty approachable Lucy (laughs) and and invited people to sign up to have lunch with Lucy. And they would choose the restaurant. They chose whom else might be at the table. And they chose the topic of conversation. Several times they wanted you know somebody in their family to meet me. So they would bring a, a spouse or someone they were dating. One young man brought his mom and his brothers and his department. And 
it was 10 of us in total at the table for that lunch, which turned out to be a dinner. But during those lunches, I learned it became the most valuable time I spent in my company every week because it enabled me to learn about the unique challenges that those individuals had before they even came in to work every morning. So I learned about their personal lives, um, sometimes too much. Um <laughs> But I learned about their hopes and dreams, and not a single one of them had dreamed about growing up and coming to work for a company that printed hospital bills. <laughs> but you know, but they were working for me, putting their dreams on the back burner so they could pay their bills. And just understanding their own dreams, their challenges was invaluable to me in leading them. And they weren't shy about telling me what I was doing wrong or the, what they liked about what I was doing. And so it enabled me to build a much stronger company that was really meeting their needs and the first need you know, to be heard. I like what you say about people who take issue with investing in employees for fear that they go somewhere else. Your response is, well, what if you don't invest in them and they stay? <laughs> yeah. You want people that are smart and dedicated and, and are learn-it-alls. <laughs> Those are the people that you want working for you. And, and that's what I had. Mm. Uh, Sherry, what has your experience taught you about what is ultimately a fair living wage in your view? Wow, I could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> I thought when I started Letter Logic that I was paying a fair living wage. And in Nashville, Tennessee, the um, minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. And many of our jobs were factory jobs. So we were paying, having our starting pay be $12 an hour. So people got past the $12 an hour pretty quickly. But someone taught me that the way to look at this is to look at the two lowest paid employees in your company and think about what might happen if those two people started dating, which happens, <laughs> and get married on their joint salaries, their joint wages, in what neighborhood could they afford to live? Mm. Is it a safe neighborhood? Is it a neighborhood where they could um, safely have children and have those children play on the sidewalks there? Is it an income that would allow them to save any money, to put money aside for their children's education? And then something that you and I take for granted is having money for a vacation. Mm. Would what I paid those people allow them to have a vacation. And with that mindset, we raised our minimum uh, starting wage to $16 an hour. And I would say that in Nashville, Tennessee today, $16 an hour would not get it. It's probably closer to 18 But you can't expect people to come to work for you and to be totally focused on doing their jobs and doing them well if all they can think about is whether or not the lights are going to be on when they get home or whether or not their truck is going to be repossessed or whether or not they can pay the rent. And so taking care of those basic needs for the employees really helps them focus on taking care of the customer. The thing I really love about your story is, is your proof that you can do things like that and still flourish. I mean, most people who would object to that are concerned about, you know, being profitable. And if it's a, a public company, you know, shareholders and things of that nature. But I think your story is an amazing example of when you put employees first, truly in every aspect of the company, your company is going to be successful almost without exception. 
Yeah, absolutely lead the truth. And there are a lot of great examples of that in the uh, corporate America, too, of companies that take the employee first strategy. I have to tell people constantly that we were not successful in spite our benefits and putting the employees first. We were successful only because of that. Mm. Sherry, why do you feel so strongly about having a profit sharing plan. Um, some companies do that, but the reality is most don't. And, and, and how did what you did in regard to profit sharing differ from the way most companies do it? The way most companies do the profit share is annually, and it is distributed as a percentage of your salary. So people who are already making higher salaries automatically get a bigger piece of the pie, in the profit share. That didn't seem fair to me. And I also didn't like the annual aspect of it because that seems more like an entitlement. I wanted to be able to tie the actions or the inactions of an employee to the profit so they could draw a direct line between their behavior and our outcome. Mm. And so our plan was very different in that once a month, I brought all the employees together in the same room. And we went over the financials from the previous month and we talked about the results. We talked about to the penny exactly how much money we brought in that month and then to the penny what we took to the bottom line and profitability. And then we talked about all the factors in between hmm. so they could see and remember in the last 30 days, you can remember what happened. And so you, there was a great way to tie in the big screw up that we had this <laughs> with this one particular job with a lower profit that month. Hmm. And then at that point, we took 10% of the bottom line, whatever it was, and this is key. We split it evenly, mm. meaning that the custodian got exactly the same thing that I got, who got exactly the same thing that the head of IT got. And that not only did it nurture and cultivate the empathy, making us care more about each other, it let us know that nobody was more important than anybody else. And nobody was less important than anybody else in getting a quality product out. And to this day, I believe it was the single greatest idea in business I ever had. And I would never operate a company without it again. It changed behavior. It gave every employee a true vested interest in the outcome. And I, I think that, you know, a really crucial part of it was the transparency and telling them how we made money. You know, we all want to have our companies to be successful and profitable, and we want employees to make the best decisions and actions to be profitable. But how in the heck can you expect them to do that if they don't understand the financials and they don't understand the connection between their behavior and the financials? So the transparency and the open book policy was really an important part of that whole puzzle, too. Sherry talks a great deal in the book about the danger of, of losing focus. Uh, Sherry, talk about what you learned, sometimes the hard way, uh, about the importance of, to use your words, majoring in the majors. Uh, well, our company had just tremendous success. Every month, the profit share checks were getting bigger and bigger. Um, they started out at $7 and then $17 and then $170 and then $700. And then suddenly, the checks got smaller and smaller mm. because I lost focus. Um, instead of us concentrating on our core product, which was the printing and mailing of healthcare bills, I got carried away with the idea of us becoming a tech company and being able to send the bills electronically and receive payments on behalf of our hospitals electronically. 
And we were doing that, but we were doing that with third parties. And I got the, the, the not so bright idea to bring it in house. And taking my eye off the ball, suddenly our profits started to dwindle. And then we had two months of back to back losses mm. where I had to stand up in front of the employees and say, I'm sorry, there are no profit share checks this month because we lost money. Mm. And I was struggling with that on my own. I kind of knew what I needed to do, but I just couldn't accept it. And I hired a, a just a brilliant uh, strategist who came in for on an 18-month assignment to help me. And he told me, you know exactly what you need to do. And, and so I did what I needed to do, which was let go of trying to be something we weren't and something we could really never be and to focus on what we were, the very best at printing and mailing paper. We righted the ship so quickly that from the time he talked to me about that, which coincidentally was at the time when we raised our starting minimum wage from $12 to $16 an hour, the same time frame, we quadrupled EBITDA in an 18-month period mm. just by getting back to what we were really good at, what we were known for, focusing on our core competencies instead of trying to diversify so much. Real quickly, Sherry, for the uninitiated, you used the word EBITDA. Uh, describe uh, what uh, what that acronym is all about for those who, who may not know. Um, it's earnings before tax depreciation and amortization. So it is the number, the figure that's used in most cases to determine the value of your company. Well, I, like you, Sherry, was taught the uh, sandwich method when it comes to giving uh, constructive feedback, which for those who don't know is tucking some constructive criticism after and before uh, niceties. <laughs> uh, I've always felt uh, that that method was insincere, uh, and I understand you feel the same way. What's, what's your preferred method when it comes to giving feedback? The preferred method is just being direct. And people know, in fact, often which I did not write about in the book, often when I was going to give employees some corrective criticism, I would say to them, you know, I want to talk with you about uh, something, an area in which I need for you to work. What do you think that might be? Mm. And almost every time they knew it. <laughs> I love that. They were aware. And so it just made it easier for me to talk about and say, well, what are you doing to improve and how can I help you improve in that? But I, I think you know, I had to develop that trait. It's not something I was uh, born with. <laughs> In fact, to, to get there to, to where I could be direct, I would practice over and over again and consider what they might say and how I might respond. And I had written on this whiteboard in my office the words, always, always be direct. And to realize that that was the most empathetic, the most compassionate way to provide feedback was being direct and, and not toying with people. And then I often would meet with one of my senior leaders ahead of time to say, I'm having a meeting with so-and-so, and this is what I'm going to say, and this is what I expect the outcome to be. And so sometimes I would invite them to join me just to hold me accountable because mm -hmm. I could not. I couldn't back down and not say or do what I thought I was going to say or do. And it uh, had an interesting benefit of giving them confidence in my word that she means what she says and she says what she means. She said she was going to do this and she did it. And she did it with compassion and kindness. Something that, that I have learned in the last few years and something else that Sherry uh, talks about in her book is the fact that no is a complete sentence. <laughs> uh, Sherry, why do you say no to most requests for, for lunch and, and no to most meetings? And how do you handle the fears that many of us struggle with that often come with saying no? Well, I'm a big hypocrite, actually. Um, 
because I, I, I frequently get into the mode of saying yes too often and have to go back and read that chapter again. <laughs> you know, I, I, I got into a bad habit of saying yes to everything because I felt guilty. You know, I felt like I've got to give back and I've been successful and I've got to provide feedback for these people too. And it really got to the place where it was killing me mm. and I had no time to work on the things that really mattered. And what I found and what I find repeatedly when I say no to things that don't really matter, it gives me the ability to say yes to bigger things, to better things, things that are, are more meaningful in the long run. The strange thing that's happened during this period of COVID-19 is that I've been accustomed for years into having breakfast meetings and lunch meetings with, with mentees mm. and just people in the business community and not realizing how much time that takes for every breakfast and every lunch. It's not just the time for the meal. It's the time to drive there and to drive back and to get back into the mode of working. And through this phase, I'm taking only walking meetings. So I'm walking uh, over six miles a day. So if somebody wants to talk with me, they agree to do it as I'm out walking in the neighborhood Mm. on my phone. And so that way I'm getting my exercise and I'm giving them my time too. And I'm not ever going to change that. It's been pretty eye-opening. I love that. In regard to to no, um, my friend, I call him my friend now. Um, I just had him on the show a couple of weeks ago, but we're best buddies now. You, you and I will be best buddies soon. You don't know it yet, but we will. Uh, his name is Carlin Vance, and he wrote a book called Getting Unbusy. And he talks about how most of us default to yes to requests. And if we do say no, I feel like we need to defend the no, which gives the person asking a chance to shoot and punch holes in that defense. And and he suggests that instead of defaulting to, to yes, we need to learn how to default to no. And if we're going to say yes, then defend the yes and just basically just turn it upside down. Uh, I think what you're talking about is very, very much in line with, with what Garland talks about in his book. I want to quote uh, uh, Warren Buffett there who said, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything because that no gives you the space to say yes to better. Mm. Well, I've got a couple of questions, Sherry, if time allows, that I want to ask you that, that, that aren't related directly to the book. But before I do that, I want to give you a chance to share with us anything else from the book you want to make sure we know that maybe I didn't ask about. I think that if, you know, company culture is so important and it's not something that is a result of ping pong tables or a kegger or anything in the mm-hmm. office, it's a result of caring and compassion. And I considered our culture to be, you know, a three-legged stool that was based on listening, really listening to the employees mm. and creating multiple ways and, and opportunities to listen to them. And then transparency being open and honest about everything, and then that profit share. When you tie those three things together, it can make a company so buoyant and so successful. Mm. Uh, Sherry, when it comes to reading, particularly reading to learn, what do you personally do to help retain what you read or ensure you're going to take action on something you've learned after, after having read about it? I have uh, a notebook that I carry around. I don't keep notes on my devices. i pencil and paper. And (laughs) and I do prefer little mechanical pencils. And I take notes on uh, the things that I want to act on. And then I share those things that I plan to act on with my EO group. Mm. I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization. 
in my forum, which is seven other entrepreneurs, and I tell them what I'm going to do, and then they hold me accountable for it. Mm-hmm. And we, if we don't meet meet our goals, we have to pay financial fines. So um, there's some incentive there. <laughs> yeah, there is. And it's pride, you know. So there's something to be said too about just writing things out, isn't there? Versus you know, say taking notes on an electronic device or typing them out on a keyboard. I absolutely retain much better the things that I physically write down. Well, I'd love it if you, Sherry, could maybe recommend a book or two you've encountered over the course of your career, or if it's easier, you know, it could be more recent books that you've read that have left a, a lasting impression on you, books that have impacted you a great deal. Yeah, I think I think the best book nonfiction is Essentialism. And by now, I should be able to tell you the author's name. It's just Greg McEwen. Yes, yes. I've listened to it on tape four or five times when I'm on road trips. I've read it five or six times. My copy is all scribbled up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a reminder to get back to what really matters and to, you know, to what's essential in your life and to, to simplify. Other books that really made a big impact were The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, mm-hmm. which is all of his books are written as fables. And so they're very easy reads. But he shows a a dysfunctional company and these different characters in the company and reading it, you're able to see which one you are Mm. and you see how you contribute to the dysfunction of a company and what you can do to change it. I really love Ryan Halliday's Ego is the Enemy because, uh, you know, with successful entrepreneurs can get carried away with their own hype. And for women, I recommend that every woman read the book Women Don't Ask Because we, you know, the truth of the matter is we get less than 2% of the private equity and venture capital in this nation. And that's a reality. And yet I believe that often the reason we don't get more of the funding is because we aren't asking. We aren't asking at the right level. We aren't asking our employees to do what they need to do. We don't ask our partners for what we need from them. So we don't get the raises or the promotions or the sales that we want to get because we aren't bold enough when it comes to the ask. Well, well, Sherry, finally, I'll ask, uh, what's what's ahead for you and your team, your existing, your current team that you're excited about and uh, and able to share? What's what's on the horizon for Sherry? Well, I sold Letter Logic in 2016 to private equity. I've recently started another company. It's called Brain Trust, and it is a peer-to-peer membership for women entrepreneurs to help them get to that critical million dollar mark. And I'm um, also running across the nation as soon as um, travel <laughs> opens back up again to encourage entrepreneurs to think about employee first model as the most, the quickest path to profitability. So doing lots of public speaking and uh, just sharing my story and my experience with other entrepreneurs. Do you enjoy the, the public speaking? Love it. I'm, I'm an introvert, but I'm so passionate about this topic that I love uh, sharing and, and seeing the reaction of the entrepreneurs as they think about how they can incorporate it into their businesses and then hearing from them later, of, you know, they did it and the transformative effect it's had. Love it. Well, the book, again, is called Lunch with Lucy, Maximize Profits by Investing in Your People. Thank you, Leah Hayes, for the introduction. Sherry, it was exciting uh, to have you on the show. I loved the book, and I recommend everyone listening read it. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. It's been my pleasure to be with you. 
If you're running a business that is struggling, maybe today's conversation gave you some ideas about how to turn the ship around. That would be one, actually many great reasons to read Sherry's book. Or maybe you're looking to just have a good cry or both. I highly recommend it for those and many other reasons. For more on Sherry, our conversation, the links we referenced, and books she recommended, check out the show notes page I've created especially for this episode. You can find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 320 for episode 320. And as always, if you have questions, suggestions, encouragement, or feedback for the show, send that to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. Be sure and join me next time on the podcast when our guest will be Dana Cavalia, who spent the majority of his career as the Director of Performance for an organization you've probably heard of called the New York Yankees. In fact, Dana was there when they won the World Series championship in 2009. Again, that's next week right here. Well, that will do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next week on the podcast. Until then, please do remember that leaders read and readers lead. 